Well, with that, I want to invite you to turn to Zechariah chapter 5. This is where we're at today, and um, we're moving through the visions, through the eight visions that Zechariah had, and we're doing a pretty good job of moving through the visions. Now, admittedly, Zechariah saw all eight of these visions in one night. We're taking a couple of months to see them, and then we'll keep going through the book as well. Uh, but we're, we're making progress, and I think we're doing a good job. And today we're going to be in, Ze- in vision chapter 7, Zechariah 5, but vision number 7. Now, the thing is this. When Zechariah saw these visions, he literally saw them with his eyes, right? And then he got an explanation of the vision through the uh, interpreting angel. So I thought that it might be helpful for us to at least see some part of the vision that he, he saw so I, I, I want to bring some of these images on the screen for us to see so that maybe it'll help us remember this better. Maybe it'll help us understand the vision a little bit more. But in, in any case, we'll get to experience it somewhat like Zechariah experienced it. So the first vision that he saw was a vision of a man on a red horse among the myrtle trees. And behind him, there were other horses. And the, the significance of this vision was that God is active. Like a man on a horse is ready to go to war. God is active. God is not silent. And God is ready to go to war to conquer the world and to become king of the universe, to function as the king of the universe, to be recognized as the king of the universe. That was the first vision. Then in the second vision, we saw four horns that rose up. And the four horns represented four different empires. Well, each time an empire rose up, there was a craftsman that rose up. And the craftsman would crush the horn one by one by one, except for the final horn, which is going to be the renewed Roman Empire, will be crushed by Christ, who will be the final craftsman and who will, who will come as king, conquer the world, and he will rule the world as the final and the eternal king. Then we saw the third vision. And in the third vision, we saw a man with a cord, a measuring cord, who was measuring Jerusalem. And this signified that the that God will restore Jerusalem, God will rebuild Jerusalem, and God will settle and dwell in Jerusalem. This is a promise that God was giving to Zechariah. Then we got to the fourth and the fifth visions, and those were the center, central part of the eight visions. And in those visions, the focus went entirely on the Messiah. And so in the fourth vision, we saw an image of the high priest, the high priest Joshua, who was standing in front of the angel of the Lord, in front of the angel of Yahweh, and next to him was standing the devil, and he was accusing uh, Joshua, the high priest. And so Joshua was covered with all of this filth. His garments were covered with all of this filth. And the angel of Yahweh was interceding for Joshua, and he was interceding for all of Israel, making them all clean so that they would be made righteous and so that they would stand as righteous people before God. Then in the fifth vision, we saw the menorah. 
We saw the candelabra, and the candelabra was sustained by the bowl on top of it and by the olive trees next to it with the oil coming in. And this vision represented the Messiah as the light of the world. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. And so we see this prophecy already in Zechariah. Then in the sixth vision, we saw that massive scroll, the massive scroll that Abner talked about last time. And this signified that God will judge the world, God will judge sin through the covenant, through the, the laws that he, instru- he wrote down, that he gave, that, is, that are recorded in his covenant. And he will judge sin, he will judge the sinners, he will judge the entire system of sin, and he will declare righteousness. Then in the seventh vision, which is what we're going to see today, we see a woman in a basket, and this speaks of God's final and ultimate defeat of sin. And then just as a preview for next week, which Abner will talk about, this is vision number eight, and there we're going to see four horses and four chariots that will, that will represent the fact that God is swiftly moving through his plan, bringing it to the end, bringing it to completion, as he judges the sinful world, and as he establishes his messianic kingdom. These are the eight visions. Pretty overwhelming to get this all at once, isn't it? It's like, wow, that went fast. Well, can you imagine now Zechariah getting all of these in one night, and one after another with the interpretation? So in a way, not in the same way, in a much lesser way, we get to experience a little bit of what Zechariah saw in that one night, all these eight visions. Well, he receives these visions to encourage him, to encourage him, to encourage the Israelites that God has a plan for Israel, that God is going to implement this plan for Israel, and that he's going to bring his plan to completion so that God reigns as king in the end, and he will do this in his right time, in his wise time, but he will bring all of this to completion. Now, with all of these visions, there is an exhortation to Zechariah, to the people of Israel, to us as well. And the exhortation is, submit to God. Submit to God. Don't say like the pagans say, you know, God says that he's going to do something. God says that he's going to come But you look at the world, it's the same. Whatever was happening 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, it's all happening just like it always happened. And that's what Peter recorded in 2 Peter 3.8. He said that the pagans mock, they mock God, and they mock God's promises, and they say, where is the promise of His coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing changes, they say. But God gives these uh, visions to Zechariah, to show them that he is acting, and so don't stop obeying God. God is at work. God is moving his plan forward. God will fulfill it in his time. Not in our time, but in his time. So this message is a message for us today, just like it was for Zechariah during his time, for us as well as it was for the Israelites at that time. So as believers... We must continue to be faithful to God, who is faithful to his own word, to his promises. 
for non-believers who may be in this room, you must repent. And you must repent now, and you must believe and submit to God now, because if you don't humble yourself now, God will humble you in the future when he comes back to reign as king. But then it will be too late to repent. So with all of these visions, we look at vision number seven today, the woman in the basket. The woman in the basket. Zechariah sees a woman in the basket that represents sin, and the sin tries to establish itself, its own kingdom at the end of time. And remember that this vision comes to Zechariah in a time when Israel is suffering, is experiencing consequences for their sins. They were sent to exile because of their sin. They came from exile. Now they were in Israel, but they were still suffering the consequences of sin, and they were still sinning, and God was calling them to repentance. And so the question that Zechariah and the Israelites are inevitably thinking is, does God have control of sin? Is God ever going to do something about this sin? Or is everything going to continue just as it is? And so God gives the seventh vision to Zechariah to answer these very questions and to encourage Zechariah. And he reveals to him two truths. He reveals to him to encourage him that God has full control over sin. He shows him God's sovereign control over sin And he tells him that God will fully destroy sin, showing him that God is sovereign over the destruction of sin in the end. So turn with me to Zechariah chapter 5, and we want to look at verses 5 through 11. This is the vision that Zechariah saw. Zechariah 5, verses 5 through 11. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. So I said, What is it? And he said, This is the ephah going forth. Again he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah, And threw the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, Where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, To build a house for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, She will be set there on her own pedestal. This is the vision that Zechariah sees. Now, we are all familiar with the harlot of Babylon from the book of Revelation. The harlot of Babylon is a symbol of false religion, of materialism. And in the book of Revelation, an angel comes to John And he shows him a woman who is called the great harlot who seduces all of the world with her wickedness. And then in Revelation chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, John says, as you can see on the screen, John says, And the woman, this great harlot, she was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, 
having in her hand a gold cup of full, full of abominations and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This great harlot will come at the end of time, and she will represent the ultimate wickedness that this world will see. She will symbolize the world's system of false religion, materialism, greed, immorality, all kinds of abominations, and ultimately, as a whole, rebellion against God. And she will be known as the harlot of Babylon, because Babylon represents materialism and rebellion against God. Now, in the book of Revelation, God shows John that this woman of Babylon will come at the end, at the end of time, but that she will be destroyed by God as God establishes his own kingdom, which will not be destroyed. Well, hundreds of years before the book of Revelation, Zechariah saw the harlot of Babylon when she was much smaller. The woman in the basket in this seventh vision. So already in the days of Zechariah, God was setting up what he was going to do to reveal to John in the book of Revelation and how he was going to bring this world to the end. God was showing Zechariah that he was sovereignly moving his plan through Zechariah's time to the determined, predetermined end that God had set out for this world. And so God shows Zechariah this small woman in a basket, and he reveals to him these two truths to encourage him, that God is sovereign over sin, and that God will sovereignly destroy sin in the end. Now, what this means for us is that we should never fear evil. We should never feel that evil is out of God's control, or that it's always going to be around, because it's not. This world is increasingly evil. I've heard, I mean, maybe you've heard people say that I feel sorry for the kids who are born into this generation because they're going to grow up in this wicked world. I've said that myself, and I understand that. But the whole point of this vision is that the evil is in God's sovereign control, and it is headed towards destruction. The reality is that there is no better time to be alive than right now in this dark world. Because the darker this world, the brighter our light. The darker this world, the more we can shine in this wicked world. So in spite of the power and the pervasiveness of evil in every part of this life, God will destroy all of this sin and he will establish his kingdom. This is the message of this vision. And we begin with God's sovereign control over sin. God's sovereign control over sin. God shows here through this vision that he has full control over all of the sin that is happening in Zechariah's time, in our time, and will be happening until the very end. Now, even though sin is becoming worse and worse, it is all in God's sovereign power. The vision, as we look at it, begins in the middle of action. It says that the angel went forth 
And the angel told Zechariah, look at what is going forth. And then the angel said, this is the ephah going forth. You know, as this vision begins, there's a lot of movement happening here. It's kind of like when you walk into LAX. Everybody is running and rushing. They're dragging their luggage somewhere. They're in a hurry. They're rushing to their gates. And there's all kinds of announcements being made. And then you hear your name being announced on the intercom. Mr. Esav Zakovic, please, please come to gate 27. The gate will close in three minutes. I'm sure you have heard that yourself. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> but it looks like chaos in LAX. But the reality is that everything is very organized. There are thousands of people who are getting on thousands of planes, or hundreds of planes maybe, at various points of the day and night, and they're all going to the specific places that they have bought tickets for. And most of the time they arrive there, right? (laughs) It's very, very organized. Well, Zechariah here sees God in the middle of action, which God has full control over. Things are moving. God is taking action. And the action that God is taking is to judge sin. All of this is happening in Zechariah's time. It's happening in our time. And it's going to be happening until the end of time. Now, Zechariah sees an ephah. The ephah is initially so small that Zechariah can't even make sense of what it is. So he says to the angel, what is it? And the angel says to him, it's an ephah. Now, you may say, what's an ephah? right? What is an ephah? It's not English. Well, an ephah is a measurement of a specific container, container for grain. So like we say, uh, it's a gallon of milk, right? The gallon is a measurement, and that's what an ephah is. An ephah is a basket that holds about 1.05 bushels of grain. And I know that's not very helpful, because you're thinking, what is a bushel? I don't know what that is. So what I did was I brought this basket, which is about the size of an ephah, okay? So here it is. This is about the size of an ephah. Maybe it's a little bit larger, but this is what Zechariah would have seen, and the woman would have been in this basket. I found this basket in my house. I uh, didn't know that I had an ephah in my house. (laughs) I called my sister. When I was looking for something like this, I called my sister and I said to her, Sister, do we have an ephah in our house? And she said, A what? <laughs> what language are you speaking? And so then I described it to her. The, the conversation didn't go exactly like that. But she was the one who told me that we do have this in our house. It was in our living room. I had no idea. I didn't know that it was going to become useful one day. So this is <laughs> terrific. But it's a basket. So an ephah is a basket that is small, in this case, according to the measurements, in which there is a a woman. And so the question is, so what's the meaning of this basket? What is the significance of this ephah? Well, the ephah is a symbol of sin. It's a symbol of a specific kind of sin, which is greed. The purpose of the basket, just in general, is to put grain in it, right? It's, it's what satisfies our physical self, our uh, fleshly self, the material part of you. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with having grain, with collecting grain. But when it begins to define you, when this physical material part becomes your God, then 
its sin. And what, that's what this back, basket symbolized. It symbolized the pursuit of Israel for all kinds of material things to fill their life with all of these things. That's what they were all about. That's what defined them. That's what the vision was showing. That's why the angel says here, this is their appearance in all the land. When you look at them, this is what you see. Their greed to get more and more and more. In Hebrew, the word for appearance literally is I. It's the word for I. You look into somebody's eyes and you can see what they truly are. Right? So here the idea is that you look into the eyes of Israel, you're going to see materialism. You look into the eyes of Israel, you're going to see the dollar signs there. I mean, in this case, it'll be the shekel signs, but it's going to be signs of currency, right? Because they're all about obtaining more and more stuff. Their eye, so to say, was always eyeing stuff so that they could get more of it. Earlier, we saw that the eyes of God went to and fro. And the point of them going to and fro was to get rid of iniquity from this world. Well, the eye of the people, of the Israelites, is the exact opposite here. They are eyeing things in order to obtain more things for themselves, and in this way, they're actually carrying out iniquity by their eye. Now, this was the sin that Israel came back with after they were in exile in Babylon. This was the sin that was, materialism was the sin that was associated with Babylon. But now, after exile, it had become the sin of Israel. Uh, the exile in Babylon purged Israel of worshiping physical, man-made idols. You know, before exile, they worshiped objects that, uh, that represented various idols in their life. You can remember that they worshiped the golden calf. They worshiped the statue of Baal. They uh, worshipped the statue of Asherah, which the king Manasseh put into the temple. Isaiah considers and condemns them for this in Isaiah 44, and he says this. He says, you take a piece of wood, and you use some of it for fire to warm yourself, and you use the rest of it to make an idol for yourself, and you fall down before it, and you worship it. That's ridiculous. And Isaiah was trying to make this point to them that this is ridiculous. Well, exile, uh, exile in Babylon purged Israel of this ridiculous idolatry, of this ridiculous sin. You go to Israel now, you're not going to find Asherah, you're not going to find Baal, you're not going to find the golden calf there, you're not going to see any of those idols. But Babylon did not rid Israel of materialism. It only intensified it for Israel. And they brought it back with them when they came back from exile when they returned to Judah. And we saw this in Haggai. Haggai condemned Israel when they were focusing on their houses. Right? They were building their houses. They were making all of these uh, fancy things and panels on their houses while the house of God lay in ruins. Greed defined Israel. Greed had become the new and the invisible idol for the Israelites. Paul wrote in Colossians 3.5 that greed is idolatry. Well, greed was the new idol of Israel after exile. But you think about it, this sin is not limited to Israel. It spreads throughout the world. 
Verse 11 says that this basket flew from Israel to the land of Shinar. It's a pagan land where this sin was prevalent as well. So materialism was not limited to Israel, to just that region or to just that people. It was common in all of the nations. And it wasn't and it is not limited to that time period either. It's very true today. I read an article this past week about how much people love money in our generation. The reality is that it's always been like this, but how they love money and how they want more and more and more of it. And the article said that there are, the, there are people with so much money that they're not going to be able to spend all of it during their lifetime. But the punchline was that, and yet they still want more money. And the article brought up this example uh, of John D. Rockefeller. He was an oil tycoon from the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, he was one of the richest men in American history, worth $200 million in the early 1900s, which is about $24 billion today. $24 billion today. I know that's not uh, the highest number just yet. Elon Musk is worth $240 billion I don't know what you do with such numbers, right? I'm worth, I think I'm worth like $24 last time. I think that's what it was last time I checked. <laughs> right, yeah. And so the, the key thing with John D. Rockefeller was he had all of this money and they did an interview with him and they asked him, uh, how much is enough? And he gave that famous answer, just a little bit more. One more dollar. But here's the thing. You don't have to be rich to be greedy. You don't have to be rich, rich to be greedy. You can be poor and greed can be your God. Greed is not how much you have or how much you don't have. Greed is the condition of your heart. It's the craving to always want more because no matter what you have, it's never enough. And this article said that enough is not an amount. Enough is the attitude of your heart. And the New Testament constantly warns us. warns us against the love of money, against greed, against loving the world. Greed applies to all time and to all people. And this is what the ephah symbolized, greed. But as we look at this vision, we see that there's more to Israel's sin than the idolatry of greed. As Zechariah was looking at the basket, the lead cover, it says, was lifted, and Zechariah saw a woman sitting inside the ephah. And you might be asking, why is there a woman sitting inside the basket? Is this a good woman? Is this a bad woman? Right, and there's no politically correct way for me to say this. <laughs> but this woman is wickedness. That's the only way that we can say this. That's what the text says. And we hear this all the time in our culture. The Bible is always and entirely anti-women. Right? The women in the Bible represent the worst things. They represent idolatry, adultery, seduction, all of these bad things. And I heard this myself in various places where I was studying. But I thought, well, she doesn't represent the worst thing, right? Because you think about the devil. The devil is a male, not a female. So at least the woman's not the devil. <laughs> right? 
But in this case, the woman inside the basket does symbolize wickedness. And this is a specific type of wickedness. It's religious wickedness. It's religious perversion. When you go to verse 11, you see that they build a house for her, and they put her on a pedestal. And this is not just a regular house. This is a religious house of worship. It's a temple. And what this means is that the sin of materialistic greed will be mixed with the sin of false religion, which will result in the ultimate kind of wickedness. And this is exactly what Revelation 17 described about the heart of Babylon. John says that this wickedness will be a love of wealth, of intoxication, of immorality, and the persecution of the saints. When this wickedness gains its full power, its full force, this will include the persecution of the saints. We are the saints. It's you and me. Listen to what John says in Revelation 17, 6. Revelation 17, 6, John says, Then I saw the woman, the harlot of Babylon, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. This woman in the basket and the harlot of Babylon will persecute and she will martyr the believers. So while the book of Revelation shows us the full, the ultimate end of this wickedness, we already get a glimpse of this in Zechariah hundreds of years before the book of Revelation is written, before John sees that vision. Now, as we consider this, as we look at this, we do not fear. We do not panic. We do not compromise our faith. The whole point of this vision is that God is in full control over sin. The fact that the basket was small shows that God set limits on wickedness and on evil in this world. It also says here that the angel threw the woman down into the middle of the ephah, which shows that he is setting, he has full control over wickedness, and he is also setting limits here. And then it says that the angel threw the lead weight over the opening of the basket. All of this shows that God is putting limits on wickedness and that God is in control of the entire sinful situation. Wickedness is definitely present in this world, but it's only as bad as God allows it to be. Look at let me go back. I don't know. It flipped. There you go. Look at this passage. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Speaking of God being in control of sin, God setting limits on sinfulness in this world. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians and says, You know what restrains him, that is the worker of lawlessness, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. In other words, God has set various restraints on evil today, as in Zechariah's time, as he will until the very end, so that evil is not revealed in its fullest force right now. Have we seen evil? Absolutely we have. Have we seen the worst of it? Not even close. 
not even close. Our trials, our tribulations, all of the difficult things that we go through, they have not been the worst of life that we can experience if God were to unleash the full power of giving freedom to evil. All we have seen is God's mercy and God's grace towards us, sympathizing with us and protecting us from the greatest force of evil and from the evil one, as Matthew 6 says. And this restraint that God has does have a purpose. The purpose is God's patience to save people. In 2 Peter 3, 9, a verse that we've come back to over and over, it says that God is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So even though there is evil now, God is in full control of this evil, and he is advancing his plan towards the end when he will bring this evil to destruction. And that's the second truth that God reveals to Zechariah in the vision. God's sovereign and ultimate destruction over sin. After seeing the basket with the woman, Zechariah then lifts up his eyes again, and he sees the second part of the vision where two women take the basket and they fly away to the land of Shinar. Verse 9 says, Two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. Now, we saw that the first woman was wickedness, and so the question, legitimate question is, what about these two women? Are they good? Are they bad? What's the, what's the assessment of these two women? Well, the first thing it says here is that they had the wings of a stork, and I had to look this up to see what a stork looks like, and here it is. I think this is a stork, so if there's any bird people here, please don't correct me right now if I'm wrong. <laughs> but it's a beautiful bird, right? But even though it's beautiful, Leviticus 11 says that it's unclean. So the first comparison that these two women get is to an unclean bird, so it doesn't look too good for them. But then the two women took the basket to build a house for the woman in the basket in the land of Shinar. So there is a protective element, a religious element to this, because as I said, the house is not a regular house. It's a house of worship. It's a temple. And they're taking her there in order to set her up there. And anytime you build a temple that is not a temple for God, it's an affront to God because only God is supposed to have a temple. Third, they were going to raise the basket and the woman and to set her up on a pedestal, it says. Well, that means that they were going to establish her firmly. Whatever they were establishing, the temple, they were going to establish it firmly. And finally, it says that they took the basket to Shinar. Where is Shinar? That's Babylon, the place of materialism, the place of rebellion against God. And so all of this shows that these women are not good women. They are, in fact, demonic angels taking the basket Uh, with this woman of wickedness to set her up to be able to oppose God. That is what they're trying to achieve. Now, this vision, as we look at it, makes clear that even though these angels, these women are wicked, they are still fulfilling God's plan. They're fulfilling God's plan of advancing this world and specifically bringing sin to its ultimate destruction. Zechariah says that these angels were coming out, or literally going forth. 
And this is something that we saw before. The flying scroll was going forth. The interpreting angel was going forth. The ephah was going forth. And now these two women are going forth. Well, this, this language shows that God is advancing his plan forward. He is doing, he is achieving and implementing what he has planned to do. And that is to bring sin to an end. So even though the angels are wicked, they're still carrying out God's sovereign will. And this is a truly amazing thought to think about. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls the devil the god of this age. So in a sense, to a certain extent, he rules over this age. But in Job, we see that the devil does only what God allows him to do. And so you remember the statement that Martin Luther made. He said that even the devil is God's devil. He does only what God allows him to do. John said in 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he, God, who is in you than he, the devil, who is in the world. And this is just one application of how God is greater. Even the devil and his demons are doing what God is ultimately going to use to achieve his plan and to achieve his will. They mean it for evil to oppose God, but God is going to use it to bring about the ultimate good. All evil is under God's control at every moment of history, and it's always moving towards the ultimate end of destroying sin. Now, even if it may seem to us like things are moving really slow, there's a lot of sin, but there's little progression in res- with respect to God's plan, it seems like. But these two angels are actually moving fast. It says here that the wind was in their wings. And this means that the angels were flying fast. God's plan was rapidly moving towards completion. Now, what's interesting in this language is that the word wind in Hebrew is actually the same word as spirit. Just like Zechariah 4.6, it says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. It's the same word. The wind or the spirit was in their wings. Zechariah could have easily said they were moving fast. They were flying fast. But he says the wind was in their wings. The spirit was in their wings to remind us that all of this is sovereignly ordained, that the Holy Spirit is involved in moving God's plan forward to its ultimate end. Now, as we think about this, the ultimate end, there are three specific indications here in this passage that show us that the ultimate end of sin is destruction. First, we see the language being used here that is specifically judgment language. It says here that the angels lifted up the, uh, the angels lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. And this phrase between the earth and the heavens appears three times in the Bible, and it always refers to judgment language. The first time is when David uh, took a census of Israel against God's will, and he stood out just like Nebuchadnezzar and said, look at Babylon that I've built, look at Israel that I've built. And so there it says that an angel stood between heaven and earth to judge Jerusalem because of David's sin. Similarly, in Ezekiel 8, 
it says that God lifted Ezekiel uh, to be between the earth and the heaven to show him the abominations, the sin of Jerusalem. And then it says that God judged Jerusalem afterwards by removing his glory from the temple. And here in Zechariah, we see this language used again, where the, the angels lift up the ephah between the earth and the heaven, leading up to the ultimate judgment of God that is coming. So first, we see here that there is the language of judgment. Secondly, we see that there is an act that deserves judgment, and that is the act to build a house for this woman. When Zechariah sees the two demonic women, he says that he asks, where are they taking the ephah? And God, the angel, answers to build a house for her in the land of Shinar. And I already mentioned that the house represents a pagan temple, which means that the woman symbolizes false religion. This woman and everything that it symbolized, everything that she symbolized, materialism, immorality, idolatry, all kinds of wickednesses, all of this would develop so much so that there would be a house of worship for her. And remember, the, the generation of Zechariah, they're trying to build a house for the true God. And they're trying to do this, and then Zechariah sees a vision where a house for wickedness is built. And this shows to Zechariah that there's going to be an attempt to usurp God, an attempt to dethrone God. So it's an absolute affront to what God is and how he will dwell with Israel. And so the question is, will God destroy this house of wickedness, this house of false worship, or will it stand? Well, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, we see that God says, I will not give my glory to another. And previously, we already saw that God destroyed the house of the thief, the house of the one who swore falsely, and he did this in order to establish his own house. And so the point here is that when this house of wickedness is built, God is going to do the same. He will destroy the house of false religions, and he will establish his own eternal house. So we see the language of judgment that points to ultimate judgment. We see the act of building the temple for the false, uh, for wickedness that deserves judgment. And then we see that there's a historical and a symbolic place of judgment. It says that this will take place in the land of Shinar. Well, where is the land of Shinar? We already said that Shinar is in Babylon. But Shinar is also the location of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. After God judged the universe, after God sent the flood to the universe, the first rebellion against God that we see, first national rebellion, is in Genesis 11 when humanity comes together and they try to build a city for themselves, a tower for themselves, in or as they rebel against God. And this took place in the land of Shinar. I put here on the screen uh, Genesis 11, chapter verses 1 and 2, and it describes this by saying, Now the whole earth had the same language and the same words, and it happened as they journeyed east, as the people journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And so there they tried to build this infamous tower, this city where they would dwell and where they would build a godless society. And then in verse 9, it says that God confused them. God stopped this rebellion, and God called this place Babel. It says, therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole 
earth. So Shinar is Babel. But Babel is another name for Babylon. It's the exact same word in Hebrew. Babel is Babylon in Hebrew. And geographically, it's the exact same location as well. So what we have is Shinar is Babel, and Babel is Babylon. It's all the same place. And these two demonic angels, they're taking the woman in the basket to the place where it all started. Shinar, Babel, Babylon. And there, a house will be built for this woman and for her religion, which will be established in order to oppose God. So the place where the first post-flood rebellion against God took place will be the place where the last global rebellion against God will also take place. So where it all started is where it's all going to come to an end. In Genesis 11, God judged the people by confusing their language and scattering them abroad. But in the end, God will judge sin by destroying it once and for all. So while the woman is small in the book of Zechariah, she will become a full-grown woman, and she will obtain worldwide influence with her wickedness in the very end. And at that time, the false religion of Babylon, materialism, anti-God rebellion will be set up on its pedestal. It will be established as the dominant center of the world and global blasphemy. And this will lead to the final showdown between God and wickedness. And at that time, God will destroy all sin. This is what Zechariah saw in the seventh vision. Zechariah would have been wondering at the time, we have suffered as Israelites so much from sin within the nation and outside of the nation. What is going to happen to all of this sin? And God gives him an answer through this vision. I will destroy it. I will destroy it. And here's the beauty of all this for you and me. We who are believers, we will be there with God when he destroys sin, when he removes sin from our lives, when he removes sin from the world, and when he dwells with us in perfection for eternity. That's what God is promising here in this vision to Zechariah. Let me pray for us. Father, we can only say thank you. Lord, with all of this sin taking place all around us and seeing all of this sin in the history of humanity, Lord, in modern history and in ancient history, and then thinking about ourselves and our lives in the next coming years, Lord, thinking about all the kids who are born into this generation and who will live to the subsequent generations, Lord, sometimes it can be just distressing to think that there is so much sin and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And Lord, to see this vision where you say, this is not going to last. I'm going to destroy it. Lord, all we can say is thank you. So encouraging to see this, Lord, and so encouraging to turn to you and say, 
Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Lord, may this day come when sin will be destroyed, when you will reign in perfect righteousness forever and ever. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we will be with you without our own sins. I pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.